This is the What Now Podcast. Sometimes people say to me all the time, oh, I'm sure your elder Richardi was one of the best APs and zone leaders the mission ever had. And I said, actually, no, he, he trained. He trained more than any other missionary I know. And I knew President Nielsen, who was our president at the time, saw in this, in this young elder uh, the kind of thing that told him you are better off having him train missionaries that can eventually train missionaries that can eventually train missionaries and he'll provide a far greater yield of influence within the mission field as a trainer than just any other column. This is the What Now podcast where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Danny Humphrey as he shares mission advice and lasting life lessons drawn from his infamous Richardi letter. The letter was initially written in 1994 to the son of a friend on a mission and addresses the various aspects and challenges of mission life and how to navigate through fear, rejection, companionship friction, and other realities of serving a mission, and that the most important convert we will ever have is ourselves. Today, I'm here with Danny Pumphrey. Welcome. Mary Alice, how are you? Thank you. I'm happy to have you here with us. Before we get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself so listeners can get to know you better? Yeah, so um, originally from Hawaii. Uh, My background is I have a Tongan mother and an American father, so I uh, born and raised uh, in Hawaii, lived in Tonga for a little while, speak it fluently, and um, uh, lived in Utah in my high school years, went to West High School, and uh, after high school, went to college, played college football, and then uh, went on a mission, and, and I live in Utah, and uh, that's about it, I think. Well, you had a really interesting missionary letter that you wrote. Do you want to tell us a little bit of background on that? Because that's going to be our focus today. Well, I have to say, um, when I wrote it in 1994, uh, a dear friend by the name of Don Clark, I was living in the city of New Canaan, Connecticut. I was working in New York City at the time. And Don Clark had asked me to speak at a little gathering of, uh, you know, mission prep, uh, multi-stake And there were many speakers that evening, uh, all there to tell missionary stories. So I I told three stories about my trainer uh, from when I served my mission in England, an Italian gentleman named Fabrizio Ricciardi. And so I I told these three stories. Don Clark at the end of the night said, hey, would you mind giving me a copy of your talk? I want to give it to my son, Ben. Clark, who had just entered the MTC. And I said, oh, Don, I hate to tell you this. I didn't write anything down. So he asked me, is there any way you could sit down and put pen to paper and just crank something out for me that I can send to my son? So you know what? One Saturday morning, I sat down and I not only began to write these three stories I had related in that evening, But then this amazing experience happened to me where I just kept typing and typing and typing. And I opened up my journal and began to relive, if you will, uh, my time with my trainer and and his impact on me. And that resulted in this 16-page single-space document, which 
Mary Alice, I, I hate to admit, even after four years at BYU, I don't think I wrote a document that long. <laughs> <laughs> and and it became this letter which took on a life of its own, uh, thanks to Don Clark, because once I had written it and given it to Don, years later, he contacted me and said, you know, this Don went on to be a mission president and an area authority in South America. And unbeknownst to me, he was handing this letter out to all the missionaries and all the mission presidents. And it circumnavigated the globe and took on a life of its own and became, to this day, is referred to as the Ricciardi letter. Funny enough, missionaries will often call it the Ricciardi letter based on the spelling of the name, but the proper pronunciation is Ricciardi. And I had no idea that would happen. I know that's incredible. I mean, you were really transparent in that about the realities of the mission, the realities of his leadership style. And he was your first companion out in the mission field. And he had a very um, strong personality, it sounds like, and a very determined <laughs> approach to missionary work. That might have been a little uncomfortable for someone who's fresh, greeny out on the mission field. <laughs> But after reading your letter about your experience with him, I felt like he could have written the whole missionary handbook. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's interesting about that. Uh, Brother Ricciardi, because he's no longer a missionary, who now lives in London, England, which shows you how much he loved the people of England. He went home and not long after moved right back to England. He is not a strong personality. I, I feel bad because the letter has brought him a level of notoriety he is completely uncomfortable with. And you have to keep in mind, you know, it's hard in writing. I mean, if I were now a seasoned author, I would have rewritten the letter to be more inclusive of the tremendous softness and love that he had for people and companions. The problem is when I wrote the letter in 94 in my you know, 20s, fresh off my mission, I was writing to my impression of what I saw in him and how he influenced me, which no question, if you read the letter, feels strong. It feels forceful, almost emboldened in an obnoxious way. And I have to tell you, he's absolutely the opposite of that. I, If I could do over, I would have written the letter to be more inclusive of of the softness of his spirit. But remember, I was writing to the son of a friend. It was meant to be inspirational. It was meant to say, go out there and be bold. But the reality of Elder Ricciardi is he is a very sweet, loving, yes, bold for sure. But it's a boldness born out of love. And and if he were on this podcast with us, he would tell you, overbearance is simply boldness without love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when people know you love them, you can never be too bold. And listen, I'm a grandpa and a father, and I'm 56 years old. He's absolutely right. If people know you love them, you're surprised what you can actually say to them. Well, he learned that very young. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I know. I love the story of you and Elder Ricciardi in the Birmingham train station on your first day of the mission um, and how he you were tired, you're exhausted. He's leaning back. You think he's sleeping on the train. He's actually praying. <laughs> will you go elaborate on that? Yeah, got to keep in mind, we had just been paired that afternoon together. And I did not write this in the letter, but I'll say this to you. When you arrive there, you probably know this either from an experience of your own or children who've served missions, but 
you know, they line up the five or six missionaries that are the trainers. They line up the five or six missionaries that are the newbies, the greenies, as you say, and they're about to pair them together. And he had the biggest smile on his face, like a Cheshire cat smile. And I saw it most of that morning. And I remember saying to myself, please don't put me with him. And the reason I said that is because uh, I had gone on a mission for all the wrong reasons. A young girl in high school that I fell in love with who essentially said, for us to have a future, you have to be a return missionary. I played college football before I left on my mission. I had dreams of being uh, Steve Young, you know, I, you know, in other words, do my missionary work as a professional athlete and not worry about taking two years out of my life. But this gal meant enough to me that I decided to go. So if you can imagine, I've come for all the wrong reasons. The last thing I wanted was someone who was ultra happy and ultra smiley. Um, I had the kind of mood that day that I just did not want to be cheered up by anybody. So I want you to think about, we get paired, we we go to the train station um, from Coventry to Birmingham. When we arrive to the Birmingham train station, it is massive. I'd never been in a place that big in my life. And we're now finding where we're going. We stop someone, we ask, they tell us where to go. We go there and we're the only ones there at the actual train platform. So to your point, he sat on the bench. I actually went and sat to the other side, which speaks to a little bit of my spirit. You know, I hadn't graduated from seminary. I hadn't I I had I didn't really have strong feelings about spiritual things to be candid with you. Mm-hmm. And so you combine all that, it was a cocktail for, you know, some selfishness and and immaturity. I sat at the other end of the bench. He tried to coax me further down to his end. I said, "No, I'll be fine." And I leaned against the back of the bench and fell asleep. I woke up, I don't know, felt like might have been 30, 40, 50 minutes later, and I looked down the bench and and he was sleeping or so I thought was sleeping. And by the way, there were still no people at this platform. Uh, As my eyes were on him, he literally, and I use this phrase, he sprung up out of his seated, what I thought was sleep, uh, like a cobra, and jumped up and looked at me and yelled, we must go, and immediately took off running. And I grabbed my bags, my Mr. Mac bags, and and let me just say, Mary Alice, Mr. Mac. <laughs> yeah, this is pre wheels. Uh, these young people of today may have never known luggage without wheels, but yeah. this is before wheels were put on luggage. I am literally dragging luggage. I'm in my best wool suit, sweating. We go up and down platforms, around corners. I'm actually under my breath. I, I am just like, I'm going to kill him. I'm so angry. This is ridiculous. Why isn't he help helping me with my bags and? We finally turn this corner and it's a train is departing and he's motioning to me, come, come, we have to get on this train. And when I get up to him and I'm throwing my bags to him and we're getting on the train, it's moving, by the way. Wow. Get to our seats. I'm furious. I'm furious. And I, when we sit down and I'm just dripping in sweat, I said, what in the heck was that about? What were you doing? I mean, you were sleeping and then all of a sudden, and he said, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. I said a prayer. I felt something was wrong. I asked Heavenly Father and Heavenly Father told me, hey, we were misled. That initial party we spoke to when we entered the building purposely sent us to the wrong place. And so I received a prompting of where we needed to go. 
Now, the funny part of that statement is, remember, we're on a train that's already moving. And so I said to him, so is this the train? Is that the right platform? He said, I don't know. I just know that's where I was supposed to go. And right then, a conductor who's coming to check for tickets, uh, Richardi says, sir, is this the train to Loughborough? He says, yes, this is the train to Loughborough. Wow. What an incredible experience with following the spirit day one. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, that he would literally spring up, run down there around the corner, jump on a moving train that he didn't even know where it was going. Well, what lesson did you learn that day? Well, first of all, the, the rest of that, he fell asleep. I mean, he was very calm. He fell asleep. I just stared at him. And, you know, I felt a little bit like a naive young boy because there was a part of me that thought, was this a magic trick? In other words, was this real? Did he know? Or is this some show for me? Uh, what have you? But as I recounted everything in my mind, I began to feel, my gosh, this was something special. So when you ask me, what did I learn that first day? I learned that, which subsequently became validated by the rest of the mission experience, you should pray about everything. And that there is not one thing that is deemed menial, too menial for prayer. Not one. And I will admit to you, there were portions of my mission where I did pray about everything. And man, did it make a difference. And there were portions when I didn't pray about everything. And man, it was, it was less impactful for sure. But when I, that moment was the first time in my life, my life, uh, 19 years old, that I had seen prayer applied in a way that right in front of my eyes, something very material resulted. It was, it was pretty stunning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. I mean, how did Richardi's confident affirmation, he had, he was kind of known as saying, I fear no man. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's pretty bold, you know, like <laughs> I, that trust that shows he has tons of faith, tons of trust and tons of commitment to what he's doing, the work he's doing, right. He is partnered with God. <laughs> oh, listen, uh, there's no question Look, we were together, I can't remember if it was day two or day three, but within the first three days of being together, and he was, by the way, he was waking me up at 4.30 in the morning. Unbeknownst to me, he was not supposed to be doing that. Uh, when you train missionaries, you're supposed to wake them up earlier than everybody else, but not, not two hours, two and a half hours earlier. But he had basically told me, oh, everybody's doing this. This is why we're getting up so early. Because I was dying physically. I just was so jet lagged. And around day three, you know, I was falling asleep in a chair by the door to exiting our apartment. And he was in the bathroom with the door open. And I could see a direct line of sight to him as he stood in front of the sink, looked in the mirror. And that was, I think, is the first time I'd heard him say, you know, I fear no man. And he was literally pointing in the mirror and pointing at himself, saying, I fear no man. Now, I began to chuckle because I thought he was doing that for me. In other words, I thought he was just giving me a little rah-rah session or trying to be comical or hysterical or what have you. But uh, as I learned, because we were together two months, that's pretty much something he said to himself every day, every morning. He may not have gotten in the mirror. He might be sitting at the table uh, eating a bowl of cereal and just mumble, you know, I fear no man. This became a, a mantra for him that I thought was comical and silly and awkward while we were together. But then I found myself four or five months later doing the same thing. 
I, I just, he really felt like if you're on God's errand and you're communicating with him and he's telling you exactly where to go and what to do every day, no matter what happens that day, no matter what the consequence of that day is, that you are doing the Lord's work. It was amazing. That is amazing. I mean, that is a mantra. You know, you just tell yourself, I fear no man, I fear no man. And you think of the spiritual connection to that, but also they've proven these positive affirmations. You will just believe what you tell yourself. The mind is really powerful. Well, and I want you to imagine it with an Italian accent. <laughs> I don't know why, but there came a point in my mission where I would say it with his Italian accent. It just sounded more dominant and powerful <laughs> in an Italian accent. So it, is, it was pretty amazing to behold, I have to say. That's amazing. Well, I like how you were talking about this in the beginning a little bit. You alluded to the fact that there was a difference between overbearance and boldness. So when people yeah. know and feel your love, you can never be too bold, he would say. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's interesting. Like if people, I think when people know they're loved, there's a certain level of trust too. So you can say yes. things you couldn't say to someone who doesn't necessarily trust you. Well, that's the thing that I, that if I had to reconcile with, again, remember, I referred to myself as young and immature because I had come out for the wrong reasons. And I really hadn't put in the, I didn't put the effort in, in the MTC. I didn't really put the effort in pre-MTC, you know, seminary, et cetera, to really prepare for a mission. So I think had I done that, I would have had enough humility in me to see in him this earnestness of, of his, of his uh, approaches and why he was the way he was. He really, truly felt like, I only have so much time. I've got to get this message out to as many people as possible. This is the errand God has put me on. And I just will not let anything get in the way of making sure these people hear the truth. I, I've, I have to tell you, Mary Alice, that there, there are... You know, as you know, we now live in the age of the web and the age of social media. And so are there people out there who feel like the letter describes this robo missionary who was like a terminator and watch out, he'll come and baptize you. That is not who he was at all. It's it's sad that it's that way. And again, if I had to rewrite the letter, I would have included the softness in him. But if you think about what you just said with your children, with people you love, where you can tell them the truths they need to hear, and they'll take it in the way they need to hear it if they know and trust that you have their best interests at heart. That's something he had that was that was one of his gifts. And, and I was always amazed that it only took a visit or two with families as we were teaching for them to get the sense that, hey, this person in our home really cares about us, really wants us to be together again as a family forever, really wants us to find truth. And that was, again, something I couldn't appreciate at the time. I saw it as overbearance. I saw it as rudeness. I saw it as boldness at a level that was almost, um, you know, offensive. And then, of course, I found myself six months later doing the exact same things because I got it. It took time, but I got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you're saying on that, too, because you do address the fact that you, he had a candid conversation with you because there was friction in the companionship. He sensed that. He directly approached you about it, but he did it in such a way that wasn't um, off-putting where he's just saying he's almost blaming himself 
for the fact that it's, you know, he, he just talks about, you know, one of them is not doing what's right. If the other doesn't, I'm going to read it right from here because I think it's so good. This candid conversation where he brought up his belief that when missionaries don't get along, it's because one wants to do what is right and the other doesn't care, becoming a turning point for you. So he came, he addressed the issue. He's like, I think one of us isn't doing something right. And if it's me, let me know. I mean, that's a very humble approach. He could have just said, you're not doing what I'm wanting you to do. And that's why this there's friction. There could have been a lot of blame there, but he chose not to do that. You know, that's why, uh, again, that's one of the moments in, in that letter where you get a real sense of his humility. Remember, he was older than most missionaries because he had served in the Italian military. So so to me, he had the, the advantage of some uh, mature experiences in his life. And if you combine that with his tremendous spirituality and love of the Lord, you have a moment. By the way, just the precursor to that engagement you just described is that he and I went to teach a family. I think it was the third or fourth visit. And they just weren't keeping the commitments. They, they weren't, you know, as you know, missionaries meet and, and always leave with a commitment, always leave a family with, would you mind reading this passage and then talking about your feelings next time we see you? Would you mind saying a prayer with your family in our absence and ask Heavenly Father to guide? So all these commitments are there. And we came back to the family. The family was sweet and wonderful. And I, I have to say, Mary Alice, I think the family would have let us come in every day uh, for a hundred days in a row, if we asked that that's how sweet they were. And so you can imagine new missionary elder Humphrey is thinking, Hey, we should, we should come here every day and we should hang out with them, whatever it takes to get them into the gospel. And of course, elder Richardi's concern was, look, we cannot have them come into the gospel because they're our pals. They've got to get here in a different way. If they're our pals, we're eventually going to be gone. And when we're gone, They'll lose that anchor. The anchor has to be spiritual experiences that occur with them, that they generate in our absence. That's So we meet this family, and guess what? He says to them, hey, look, you know, we've given you these commitments, and you haven't kept them. You're wonderful. You're amazing. But I, I just believe you're not ready for this message, and that's okay. And so you need to know that Elder and Humphrey and I, we, we are called to, to take the message to those that are ready. And if you're not ready, here's what I would ask of you. Uh, three months from now, six months from now, three years from now, when missionaries like us come knocking at your door, would you do us a big favor? Would you at least commit to letting them come in and speaking to you? Because though the message will be the same, you may feel differently. So I got mad that he had basically said to them, we're not coming by anymore, and uh, but we love you. And if you need any help from us, just let us know but we're going to carry on, carry on preaching the gospel. So we got in a little argument outside of their house, verbal. It was me, you know, just basically saying to him, you know, you're not spiritual. You're not, I, I can't believe you would say that to them. We raced home. I'm, I did not want to do companionship prayer. So I skipped it. I just went and hopped in my bed. So that moment you describe as him coming over, switching the lights back on, coming over to me. And he tells me, look, when missionaries don't get along, as you just said, it's, it's it's because they one wants to do the work and do the right thing and the other doesn't care enough. Now, as he's saying this to me, I fully expect him fully to say to me, you're the one who doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually getting angry and I'm getting ready, by the way, I'm 
I'm putting together a, a very short list of all my complaints that I just want to rattle off in rapid fire to him, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just waiting to do it. I'm waiting to do it. I'm waiting to do it. And suddenly he goes, hey, if I'm the one who doesn't care enough, let me know so that I can do what I need to to repair this. How humble. <laughs> he, leaves, he leaves my bedside. He turns the lights off. I'm in absolute shock. I was totally geared up for a fight. And he did something I absolutely did not expect. And when he did that and left me, I pulled the sheets over my face. I turned away from him. And that was the first time I I actually shed tears on my mission. And I have to say, actually felt the spirit. I, I It was the first time I got emotional about the experience, the whole missionary experience. And I remember thinking, why didn't he just say, I, you're the one who doesn't care. Why didn't he just say that? Uh, he could have said that. I mean, he really couldn't have without me exploding. But now that he didn't say it, I was wondering why he didn't say it. Because he knew, he knew he was the one who cared and was focused and was prayerful. And I was just baggage, to be candid with you. I was a total obstacle course for him. But he always smiled. And, and that was the moment that I thought, I've got to stop being this way. By the way, Mary Alice, you should know, I, I had a letter before the Ricciardi letter, and this is a little joke amongst my family. I had a, there was a letter before the Ricciardi letter, we, we fondly called the Ricciardi letter, which was my first letter home to, to a mentor, uh, the man who really was responsible for getting me on a mission alongside this young lady I told you about. His name was Charlie Taggart. He was a neighbor across the street, and I had through high school, mowed his lawn, and wonderful member of the church. And, and Charlie Taggart um, is the one who got me on a mission. Well, I wrote him a letter home in which I absolutely just wrote this long list of grievances about Elder Richardi. He's rude. He, he just walks up to people. It doesn't matter where they are. He, he'll interrupt their conversations. He'll put his badge, his little mission badge, right on the bridge of your nose when he introduces himself. You know, I, I'm giving this list of grievances and Charlie Taggart wrote me back. And the opening part of the letter was a poem called um, Oh to Be in England Now by Browning. And right after that poem was a short paragraph. And the short paragraph said, uh, do yourself a favor. Stop worrying about what he's doing and start worrying about what you're not doing. Cease and desist this spirit of contentiousness towards someone who's working so hard to do the Lord's work. That was the letter. Wow. So I call that Richardi letter one <laughs> and then the letter I wrote Richardi letter two. So now that's powerful. I, I like several things that you said there. I kind of want to circle back on some of those things because he brought up an interesting point about commitment that when people are hesitant and they don't want to commit and they just want to be your friends and kind of hang out, it's not really helping them because they're not in the headspace to embrace it yet. So you're, I can see how he'd say, we're kind of wasting time here. There might be people who are elect and ready for this message that we're missing because we're just like hanging out with these people, like almost like a sense of urgency. Like there's more people that can be out there. Um, I really like too how, um, how he was saying, be open for the next, like what we used to say, Mormon missionaries back then. So the, for the next group of Mormon missionaries, because you might be different. Yes. You know, you might process what we said after we leave and say, well, maybe I do want to know about that. 
And then that opens the door for another opportunity. And you actually had that happen later in your mission when you were with another companionship because of his invitation. I, can I tell that? you? Yeah. Yeah. I was in Nottingham, England, and I was on a missionary split with a, another companionship. And we went door knocking. And sure enough, a gentleman, the door opened. And he yelled to his wife, who was at the back of the house. He, I forget her name, but he yelled to her, hey, the Mormons are back. And, and he's like, okay, I got to let you in because I promised that Italian chap that I would let you, you guys in. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> now I did say to him, was that chap at Elder Ricciardi? He says, I don't remember his name. I just know that he made me promise him I would let you guys in. <laughs> and it was, that was amazing. You know, that was to, to, to see something like that come full circle was was very special. Seriously, and almost kind of a tribute to what he felt inspired to say, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, and if you think about that, you know, if you're going to end a relationship where you're teaching people the gospel and they're just not progressing, right? And and by the way, I do want to say to all the parents of missionaries, you know, who who've served missions and etc. Look, we all have experiences from our missions where we stuck with a family through thick and thin, through many months, even if they didn't keep commitments. Uh, when I wrote the letter and I wrote about that specific experience, I was not saying that's the only way to do missionary work. I was saying that's the way Elder Richardi chose to do missionary work. As we all know, missionaries you know, come in a broad spectrum of personality and focus and desire, et cetera, et cetera. And all those have a place in the mission field. But Richardi's feeling was, I don't have a lot of time. And if and we are here to harvest, so let's harvest. I've gotten some feedback from parents of missionary kids and, and return missionaries who've said, well, you know, I took issue with that part of your letter where, you know, you only go after the people that are ready and, and sometimes you get people ready. And I've, I'll say the same thing to all of them. The letter was about what I saw. It was not to suggest to you that this is the only way to do missionary work. What I saw was Elder Richardi saying, hey, if people aren't ready, let's leave them in a good spot for someone else in the future, and let's move on to those that perhaps are more ready. And you you saw the numbers. I mean, he served in a mission that averaged one point something baptisms per year, and, and he had significantly more than that. Now, let me just quickly disclose, if Richardi were on this podcast with us, he would tell you baptisms are not the uh, indicator they're not the indicator of success as a missionary. It's a wonderful byproduct, but but there's a lot of other things that are far more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a good distinction to make too, because sometimes it can be a numbers game, and mm -hmm. that's not what it's about, right? It's yep. about connecting with those who really want to hear the message and showing love. Like, how did expressing love to those you taught improve your interaction with them? Instead of it just being like, okay, we're gonna like a robotic situation. Well, it's funny you say that because he would start to express love to people right off the bat. And I, I thought that was a little disingenuous, like when we were together, you know, for him to say to people that we've just met, we might have spent 30 minutes with, you know, we want you to know we love you and we want to help you. But you know what? Again, as the months passed by, once I was absent of his influence, uh, later in my mission, I discovered, man, I really do love these people. And I don't need to know them all that well. I just need to know they're children of Heavenly Father. And so that was genuine. I, I learned later that, and it can be genuine and it should be genuine. It, it shouldn't be said if it's not genuine. 
Absolutely. I mean, and the spirit kind of helps you know what to say too. I mean, I've had so many instances where I'm sitting there and I'm just like, please let me know what to say. I'll just say what you want me to say. And I'll just get prompted to say things that aren't things I would normally say. <laughs> and I'm sure you have that experience all the time on the mission. Oh, you do. And and look, I I have to say, you know, early in, when Richardi was first training me, he really wanted to be more participative in the discussions. He wanted me to do this section and do this section. And I would say, no, I'm not comfortable yet. I'm not comfortable yet. And then I began to do my sections and I would mess up on a few things. And afterwards I would say to him, oh, I'm really concerned. I said this when I should have said that. And he would say to me, look, whatever came out of your mouth is what was supposed to come out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Don't worry if these, if the message is, if these people are ready and the message is there, you're not the difference between them making it or not making it. The difference between them not making it is if you don't open your mouth at all. Right. And that was important message to hear as a young missionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really love this quote from the letter where he talks about fear. And he says, at any time should fear creep back into your heart, open the Book of Mormon to any page, read, and that book will remind you of who you are. Once you're reminded of who you are and what you have been called to and by whom you will fear no man. Oh. Powerful statement. I mean... That there's a lot of fear on a mission, and how can missionaries help conquer that fear? I mean, there's a lot of fear and unknown, and you're totally out of your comfort zone, learning another language in another country sometimes, and it can be riddled with fear. How can just having that knowledge know you don't have to fear? That part of the letter you just read, and I got a little emotional, which is why that you heard that sigh from me. Um, is really one of the great things he did for me in our time together. Is He got me to understand early that if you can get away from being fearful of saying the right thing or the wrong thing and only saying the right thing and being fearful of whether you know how to, you know, come back at someone if they say something about church history or what have you, he really tried to get me to remove myself from that thinking and just to say, look, we're going to be very prayerful. We're going to be told what to do, where to go, how to do it. And you should know that the end result is not whether someone listens or lets us in to teach them or lets us baptize them. The end result is we did what we were asked, when we were asked to do it, how we were asked to do it. Uh, I have a great example of this. We'd been together about a week and we hadn't we hadn't really gone more than one mile circumference from our apartment. So we hadn't ridden our bikes yet. We just were walking. And finally he said, hey, we're going to go all the way out to this certain area. So that morning um, we're having prayer. And it's the first time I saw him pull out a map of our area. So he pulls out this map of our area and uh, we bow our heads and the prayer starts. And I'm hearing the paper wrestling because the map was, uh, was in a laminate. And I'm hearing it wrestle. And I'm not sure why I'm hearing that noise, that little wrestling noise. So I open my eyes and his hands are on the map. They're flat on the map. And occasionally he's moving his hands around the map. And he's starting to, in the prayer, name specific towns and villages in our area. And he's going through a very long list. By the way, his eyes aren't open. I know because my eyes are open and I actually did not close my eyes again for the rest of the prayer. I'm watching him with his eyes closed, head bent, and he's naming villages. So clearly he's doing this from memory. 
He's naming villages and towns, Barrow upon Soar, and he's all these different towns. And then I remember my eyes are open. He finishes the prayer and I see his finger point. His finger is now straight up pointing down into the map. He says, name of Jesus Christ, amen. He, we open our eyes. Well, my eyes were open. He opens his eyes. He looks at me and he says, we're going to go here. And when he lifted his finger, it was a town called Barrow upon Soar. Now, Barrow upon Soar was a fair bike ride from downtown Loughborough. And so we get on our bikes and we're riding. And not only are we riding, we're riding in in the wind. Like it, it was such a hard bike ride, very hilly, a lot of work. I had just played college football, but I still wasn't in the kind of shape that could handle that sort of bike ride. And we finally get out to the village. We lock up our bikes to a light pole and we start door knocking. And we're door knocking. And I'm telling you, every door, first of all, I was shocked. 80% of the residents were home. You know, normally you might knock on 100 doors and 30 homes answer the door. But this was the reverse. I, I don't know why. It wasn't a Saturday. I do remember it was not a Saturday. It was, it was maybe a Thursday. We're knocking doors. Homes are opening their doors. They're seeing us. And they're like, oh, get off my property. Door slam. The next one, another rude comment. The next one, someone tells us, I'm going to call the police, right? Uh, or the Bobbies, as it's called out in England. And and we're getting this enormous pushback. And I'm just, and by the way, I'm not doing the door approaches because I had continued to tell Richardi, I'm just not comfortable. When I get comfortable, I'll start to do them. As these doors are slamming, he's turning to me, he's smiling. You know, when these doors would slam, he would say, have a nice day, have a great week. I'm actually getting irritated because I'm thinking, why do they have to be so rude? We're just telling them we're missionaries from a church and they're being so rude to us. So now I'm starting to get angry and another door slams. And um, I actually, the gentleman says, get off my property. And the door slams and I yell, get us off your property. And Richardi was appalled. He's like, elder, elder, you cannot talk that way. And he's like, sorry, have a great day. Have a great weekend. And as the door, as we're progressing, he's getting happier. Like he has this smile on his face and he's got this cheery look. So I, I kid you not, we had reached a point, maybe 30, 40, 50 doors where 40 of the 50 was this kind of, of reception where people were just mean and negative. So I said to Richardi, I said, hey, I, I wonder if uh, I ought to make an executive decision here. I think we ought to leave. And I actually started to tease him a little bit. I was like, boy, Heavenly Father sure sent you to a great neighborhood. I mean, you gave that amazing prayer this morning, but we rode all the way out here for nothing. And the following happened. He says, I said to him, I, I, I say we leave. He says, we're not leaving till Heavenly Father tells us to leave. I said, well, I'm not so sure Heavenly Father told us to come here. And he said, Elder Humphrey, we're not leaving till he tells us to leave. He said, by the way, he did tell us to come here. And I said, oh, really? Why is it no one here wants to hear our message? Like nobody cares. And he said back to me the following. He said, this morning we prayed earnestly for guidance and we were told to come to this neighborhood. He said, Elder Humphrey, these people, he, Heavenly, do you not think Heavenly Father knew this is the reception we would receive? Do you think he not he did not know that? Of course he knew this is what he was sending us to. And yet you and I are still here. And I said, well, your, your happiness is irritating to me because it's awkward. Like, why are you so happy? He says, I'm happy because we haven't left. 
I think most missionaries would have left by now, but we came where he told us to go. We're doing what he's told us to do. He knew the kind of reception we would receive, and yet here we are. We have not left, and we won't leave till he tells us to leave. He knows this is what we're experiencing. This is what he's prepared us for. This is what we're here to experience. That, again, another pivotal moment for me where I thought, boy, I see what he's saying. The more rejection we were receiving, he was getting happier because he knew that Heavenly Father knew this is the reception we would receive, and yet we were still there. Pretty, pretty amazing thing. Pretty amazing perspective that he would choose to focus on the positive, like, wow, look at this. He's still keeping us here, knowing we're being rejected, and maybe even testing our faith a little bit. Right? Because oh. it would be easy to say, I'm out of here. This is I, awful. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, in that letter, as you know, I'm critical of his tactics uh, in the time we're together. Then he leaves me. I get new companions. These new companions weren't quite as centric to the work as he was. They weren't quite as prayerful to the work as he was. I was relieved. I loved it at first. I thought, oh, thank you, Heavenly Father. You're going to give me some time off with a missionary that is just a little more chill and relaxed. And yet, three or four weeks later, I'm like, I feel guilty. I feel like we're not doing the Lord's work. I, I don't feel tired. I don't feel exhausted in the errand of the Lord like I was when I was with Richardi. And sure enough, five or six months later, I'm training Elder Degala from from uh, Colorado, and he and I are we're going to these horrible neighborhoods, and he's making fun of me, thinking we've been sent to the wrong place. And I'm saying to him, "No, no, no, we've been sent to the right place. Everything that's happening to us is supposed to happen to us." Well, I think if missionaries understood it that way. And really engaged in that level of prayer that that I, you know, believe me, I, I, I wish I was at that stage at every moment of my mission. I wasn't. But when I was, I could see the difference in the work. I could see in the difference in how rejection actually became this strengthening thing because it made me feel like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm doing the Lord's work. He knows this is the suffering we're supposed to go through. And it just, it was really fulfilling. And by the way, if someone invited you in to teach the gospel, you felt it was 10 times more the miracle as a result, you know, right? but it was special. Because you're working for it. I mean, really Absolutely. working for it. It's interesting how you kind of started adopting his training approaches and realizing the value in that, where at first it seemed really uncomfortable and maybe a little odd out of your comfort zone. But then you realize the value in that when you're with missionaries who might not have wanted to work as hard and realizing the importance of what you're there to do. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on the AP, the assistant to the president, and that's how on the kind of top of the list. And people love to say, my son's an AP. But I think, and it is, and it serves its purpose, but um, why do you think a trainer should probably be at the top of that list? I mean, that really models the habits and disciplines for all these missionaries. Yeah, I say in the letter quite boldly that the most important calling in the mission field, hands down, is to be a trainer. And the reason is, is because, uh, first of all, just look at it from a mission president's standpoint. The introduction of a missionary to this completely foreign new environment, which may be literally foreign because you're in another country, but it's foreign even if you're in America, right? It's 
it's just a completely new and different experience. And that introduction happening right versus happening wrong, having a lazy trainer versus one that's committed to work, you know, a prayerful trainer, a humble trainer uh, versus one that, you know, it, it's it's so important to introduce a new missionary to this new environment. Ricciardi trained uh, four times. In our mission, it was very rare back in those days. I, I don't know what today is like, but back in those days, it's very rare to train before you were out six months. And it was very rare um, to train more than once because it's so taxing. It's physically and emotionally taxing because you have to step up your efforts at a high level. And by the way, remember something, remember something. The most adversarial, naturally adversarial relationship in the mission field is the trainer and their greenie. And it's naturally adversarial because a greenie comes from the MTC uh, being told, by the way, you're well-prepared, you're ready, right? Um, when they're really not. And, and there's no way, let's be honest, there's just no way you can get them fully prepared for the mission experience. It's impossible. And the MTC does an amazing job of getting them as prepared as possible, but they do arrive thinking they're ready. And then they they get with a new with a sorry with a trainer who's been out a while who knows how things really work and so there's a lot of natural uh, reason for conflict because the trainer is constantly giving you feedback on things you're saying things you're doing um, you know how you're saying things not just what you're saying how you're saying things you know uh, about this whole thing around the spirit etc so all that can be enormously overwhelming I know when I was with Richardi. You know, he kept trying to tell me, please be humble because there's so many things I want to tell you that you need to hear. And that if you'll accept and absorb them, will speed up this period of time uh, in your mission where you will be fearless. Right. And and of course, I wasn't I wasn't in a humble enough place to really take it in the way he was trying to give it. But I eventually got there. My point is the trainer is that touch point. It's the person who brings you in and introduces you. And, and believe me, I've talked to thousands of missionaries. Uh, in all these years, who have told me the difference between having a great trainer and having to recover from a bad trainer. So from a mission president standpoint, that's a level of trust. I mean, for Ricciardi to, to train four times, think about that. That's eight months, you know, two months per, uh, eight months out of your mission dedicated at a very high energy level. Sometimes people say to me all the time, oh, I'm sure your elder Ricciardi was one of the best APs and zone leaders the mission ever had. And I said, actually, no, he, he trained. He trained more than any other missionary, missionary I know. And I knew President Nielsen, who was our president at the time, saw in this, in this young elder uh, the kind of thing that told him, you are better off having him train missionaries that can eventually train missionaries that can eventually train missionaries. And he'll provide a far greater yield of influence within the mission field as a trainer than just any other column. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the honest advice that you share in this letter. It's real. I mean, it shares the highs and lows of the mission experience. I mean, I feel like every kid going out on a mission should read it because it's so real. I mean, a lot of kids go out thinking it's my best two years. It's going to be great. I'm going to baptize tons of people. It's, you know, because I have the Lord on my side, it's not going to be that hard. Like, And then they get out there and they're like shell-shocked at how hard it can be. And so I like this letter because I feel like it really does um, resonate with so many mission experiences and how to handle the highs and lows. Um, I love your quote in that where you say, you will be your greatest conversion in the mission. <laughs> I don't know why that sentence always makes me cry a little bit, but you know, that, that was what happened to me, you know, that, 
that was what happened to me. And look, I came home from my mission and I had friends who went to Eastern Europe and barely taught discussions, let alone a baptism. I mean, no baptisms whatsoever. And so if that's the case, right, if you have friends that can go to South America and baptize a hundred, a family of 12, and then people who go to Eastern Europe and uh, may, are just lucky to teach lessons, the question is, is where, what, is the, what is the gauge of a successful mission? And the gauge is very, to me, it's very simple. And this, again, is from Ricciardi. He, I mean, he said this to me when we parted ways. He basically said, look, be strictly obedient so that you can trust in all the promptings you receive and know for a fact that whatever you're told or whatever you feel to do or go, you're going to do knowing God is behind it. As a result, whatever the consequence of that thing is doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Whether you teach lessons or baptize doesn't matter anymore. The errand itself is the most important thing, and it's important you do it fearlessly. And in that process, two things will happen. You will bring yourself, you'll be that soul that's brought to the Lord, and others will join you along the way, potentially, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that was an important message, um, and, and I'm grateful. He, I'm just glad that I saw this in him all those years ago, back when I was still sort of arrogant and immature, uh, that I, the Lord touched my heart and helped me recognize what what was so great about him and and like i said i i um he's special to this day by the way to this I, day do you still, I still stay have in a touch man crush him? on him <laughs> do you still stay in touch with him absolutely as he lives in london and we zoom with each other every so often he's written a book that's on amazon called fear no man it took him took me a long time to convince him to write that book a long time because he just He's so humble. He just didn't like the idea of suggesting that his ideas were important enough for a book. And I, I had to press and press and press. Um, he's just, he's still such an amazing human being. Well, did you ever think this letter would be read by thousands of missionaries, helping them to be successful throughout the world? Oh, heavens no. And, and look, Don Clark is to thank for that. He, he got it out into the circulatory system of the mission and, Look, I get 20 to 30 friend friend requests on social media from missionaries all over the world. And I get notes and letters on a weekly basis, sometimes daily basis. And, um, you know, uh, look, this letter has small group of detractors who feel like, you know, this it's the zombie apocalypse for us to approach missionary work like Elder Ricciardi did. I, I feel badly that there's that thinking out there because he was so humble and loving and sweet. And if I were a better writer, I would have found a way to get that message to resonate in the letter more. But remember, I was 20 something focused on influencing this, the son of a friend and uh, the church now owns the letter. So I can't uh, edit it. I can't change it. Uh, it's, approved missionary reading on the missionary list. And I'm just grateful that uh, Elder Ricciardi and I um, have had a chance to help missionaries because, man, do we love missionaries. I will do anything for missionaries. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today, explaining your experience that you wrote down. And where can people find this letter? Uh, good question. I, I, I know it, 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 you can Google and find it online. Uh, and, uh, and let's I, share that spelling. It's R-I-C-C-I-A-R-D-I, Ricciardi. So correct. if you're looking at it, you can just Google that, R-I-C-C-I-A-R-D-I, 
letter and and read it. It's incredible. It's powerful. Thank you so much for your time today. I loved our discussion. I appreciate it. Mary Alice, uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.